morning shit. Let's tune into Brad and Brit. It is the Brad and Brit cast for this day. And uh, we're a threefer today. It's Brad and Brit, and uh, all Andy. around great, great guy, uh, economist, professor, consultant, and uh, one of we always uh, uh, give out the worst Jew in the world award occasionally. We've given it to, to Michael Cohn at times, Jared Kushner at times. Uh, uh, Andrew gets best Jew in the world constantly. He, he, owns, he owns the trophy. He owns the trophy. And we're so glad you're with us today. It's been a long time. Yeah, it has been. Uh, glad to be here. Retired professor, actually. Oh, wow. Look yeah, at but you. Th- sorry, this is just with politicians. You get to be uh, Senator blank forever. You get yeah. to be vice president blank forever. Why can't you be professor broad forever? Uh, good point. Uh, I, I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> no apologies necessary. Um we're going to talk a little economy first here, and then we can just veer off into to any uh, any gutter off the side of the alley that we want to. And uh, you pointed out something yesterday. I saw you, you you put a post up on this, and you know we could start with any one of Trump's eight thousand lies on eight thousand subjects, but he keeps saying how the last few months more jobs have been created than in any three month period in the history of the United States, so therefore reelect me. Would you please dissect that and just make sure that the people understand uh, what, a, what a load of crap that is? It is a true statement. It is also, <laughs> it is also a load of crap. I mean, that's the, that's the world in which we live these days. Something can be both true and incredibly misleading. Uh, earlier this spring, we shed in just a couple of months something like 22 million jobs. That was the biggest uh, loss of jobs we've ever seen. I mean, uh, we don't have uh, um, good data for the Great Depression, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if there were 22 million people working back then. This was... Right. This was an incredibly large drop. And it's true that we have gained back millions of jobs. And so if all you do, if you start the clock, you know, in June of 2020, uh, wow, this is amazing. We've, we've added something like 10 million jobs. We've never done that before. But here's the kicker. <laughs> we're still 11 million jobs below where we were in February. And um yeah, Brad, I shared a graph with you that uh, that showed that during the uh, the most we ever fell during the Great Recession of 2008, 2009 was eight million jobs. That was a horrible recession, a deep recession, an extended recession. And we lost eight million jobs. We after gaining back 10 million, we're still 11 million million in the hole. And and, and that doesn't even uh, um, get into how far below we are where we would be at this point, you know, after a number of additional months of job growth. So I have a question. We're, we're, we're when, when you, when you give out numbers like that, that doesn't really count people who work off the books or, or folks like that, does it? It's really a bigger number than that, isn't it? Don't we think it is? Well, it could be. Uh, I mean, it doesn't. The thing is, that statistic never counted people off the books. So, um, you know, are people off the books losing their jobs more than people who are on the books? Uh, I don't know. Uh, It's certainly possible. But um, uh, I mean, look, the numbers are bad enough as is. Right. Yeah, there's no question about it. I'm wondering how close are we to an actual depression or are we close? 
Well, you know, there's no hard and fast definition of these things, but generally yeah. depressions are seen to be long and extended recessions. Now, the recession of yeah. 2008, 2009 was well, it was over a year. You know, it was basically yeah. an 18-month recession, the longest one we'd had since the 1930s. Um, this one has a ways to go before it gets that, gets that gets to be that old and that terrible. But, you know, the thing is, there was back a few months ago when people talked about a V-shaped recession, mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a ridiculous thing to think. It wasn't necessarily a ridiculous thing to hope for at that time. Uh, but it's not looking like that's going to happen now. Um, at best, it's going to be a hockey stick shaped recession with a long and slow recovery because we haven't done the things that we need to do to keep the, uh, to sustain this economy during this uh, uh, astoundingly weird and historically unprecedented downtime. In 2008, 2009, it was a deep, difficult, brutal recession that we slowly came out of over the next 10, 11 years. But there wasn't a fundamental restructuring of the economy coming back in the way that we've seen in such a short period of time where a lot of jobs, they're truly never coming back in the form that they were. The airline industry, if it ever looks anything like it did a year ago, it's going to take five years. Who knows how long it it will take? It's just not going to come back overnight. So doesn't that make it seem that we've got things baked in right now that have been baked in for the last few months that are are humanly impossible to change in any kind of uh, short-term time frame, especially before that special day in November, as someone once said, yeah. Oh, the day when we're all going to be vaccinated against the... That's uh, the one. Yeah, that day. Yeah, that day. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm always a little skeptical when I hear people talk about how things will never be the same. Uh, you know, every time something happens, there are discussions of what the new normal is. Um, I think I'm less skeptical this time, but, uh, you know, I'm still a little skeptical. I mean, after all, one of the things that I think we, we understand is that there's a benefit from being near other people, not just in terms of efficiency and productivity and creativity, but also because we like being near other people. Mm-hmm. I've been in here, my, my home office for a number of months now, and I'd like to get out. <laughs> um, <laughs> Of course I do. But, but you know, I, I don't go to meetings. Um, one thing that I think I'll give you an example of something that may never go back to the way it was. My consulting business is as an expert witness in lawsuits. And so I, uh, I get deposed as an expert witness uh, on occasion during the coronavirus crisis. It's happened four times. And each time it's been right here in my home office with uh, Zoom or some related uh, kind of software app. And it's worked great. And I've heard the attorneys say, why don't we always do it like this? This is great. They don't have to get dressed. They don't have to go somewhere. They don't incur travel expenses. So I can imagine, you know, certainly some things will never go back. But I'm skeptical. I I wonder if we really will see a a dramatic restructuring of our economy. Higher education? Yeah, maybe. You know, that's that's a possibility. But we know that this isn't good for younger kids. Uh, It's not good for my kids. Um, I can tell by the screaming upstairs right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm also wondering, one of the backbones of even a local economy is the, the restaurant scene. And we've seen just a, a brutalization of restaurants in uh, markets all over America. And I, I don't know if or when that recovers, when we finally get a vaccine and people are actually able to gather without social distancing, whenever that might be next summer or whatever. 
there may be some people who are out there who are like, yeah, I'm going to roll the dice with my 401k, my retirement money. I'm finally going to open up that restaurant that I've been talking about for 20 years with my wife or uh, maybe we'll get with the bank. It, it seems that borrowing money is going to be fairly cheap for the foreseen future because there's going to have to be some capital. It's going to need to be injected and a lot of people taking a lot of risks this economy to try to build back something. Is that how you see it? Sure. And, and you know, I think the absolutely. Uh, I think before one thing, I think money is going to be cheap for quite some time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, take restaurants. That's a great example of something that I don't think is going to change. We like to go out. This has been I mean, those of us who like to go out to eat. I mean, I mentioned I'm here in my home office, but one of my great pleasures has been meeting friends for lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I haven't done that in, in months, uh, uh, of course. And uh, and I want to. And when it's uh, um, uh, when I feel that it's safe, you know, when it's possible, it's etc. Uh, I'll do it. So I don't expect there's going to be a significant change in the restaurant industry. Now, I, I mean, not in terms of whether there is one or isn't one. I do think the players will change. We have not uh, uh, sustain this economy in a way that will allow businesses, many businesses to survive, and many of them already going under. So I think that, um, uh, you know, the identities, the names on the on the fronts of the buildings will change. But I think there will be restaurants again. It's just that people lose money, uh, other people will come in, it won't be a, 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 a smooth or pretty process. Mm-hmm. But um, it's not the way you want to have change in an economy. But but that's an industry that I uh, very much expect to come back because we all like doing it that way so much. Given that it was always a difficult industry anyway, it was always a difficult place to survive in in any space anyway. Right. But now what we're seeing is that even the ones, uh, the, the, the companies, the restaurants that have been successful, right. are, are, are some of them are going under. Um, we've done a bad job of sustaining small businesses. Um, and so um, this is what's going and, and that's the thing that's going to turn this from a potentially, at one point, potentially V-shaped recession into what could be a very long slog uh, pulling out of the other end. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the employers aren't there, when people feel safe and, and are ready to go back to work, well, then they're they're going to be unemployed for yet a different reason. All right. That that allows us to kind of glide into what's going on in Washington with the last two months, an inability to strike some kind of a deal to keep money flowing to people, to keep them afloat, to keep them able to pay their rent, to keep them able to make their car payments. Uh, which is what got us apparently through uh, March and April when they really they really saw the wolf at the door, and uh, suddenly the Congress was able to act very very quickly, and the president signed off on it very very quickly. And now you get this feeling that because everything is political and everything is advantage, the Republicans are somehow seeing more of an advantage in not compromising, not throwing more helicopter money at people to keep them afloat and they can get their act together instantly to put in a brand new Supreme court justice to fulfill the uh, ideological wet dream of Ronald Reagan and Jerry Falwell from 1980. They can do Mm -hmm. that instantly, but they cannot give on this kind of, of, of deal, which would help get us maybe to the end of the year, which Donald Trump doesn't care about the end of the year. He only cares about November 2nd or 3rd, and so do Republicans. And I think it's really cynical, and I'm hoping, sadly hoping, that uh, there really are millions and millions of people who are hurting badly enough that they're, they're, please don't give Donald Trump another chance at this. 
please don't fall for the con again, please. But I could be wrong. You know, it's been a very weird thing watching uh, the the activities in D.C., weirder than in most years, because the process, as near as I can tell, has been one in which Democrats, in particular House Democrats, keep trying to persuade Republicans to do things that are in their political self-interest, and Republicans keep resisting. So, for example, you mentioned the emergency unemployment benefits. Uh, apparently, they had to be pressured into it in exchange for Democrats giving them their you know, incredibly ineffective PPP loan program, uh, uh, various other things that, they've been, that they were looking for. They finally agreed to emergency unemployment benefits, which you got to understand is very tough for Republicans to do because – on a very fundamental level, they think that anyone who's unemployed is is a lazy slacker, you know, and, and is and is not deserving of benefits. They they are, they find it very difficult to see such benefits as a means to an end, you know, like saving an economy. And well, I think the most and we I think, used to joke we used to joke about the fact that the Republicans would rather see ten million people get no benefits rather than one person who may not right. deserve it get the benefit because that's it's too true. painful to see one person undeserving get it versus the 10 million who should get it. That's well, I, think, I think the most revealing reporting that we had on that is something that came out uh, a, a number of weeks, maybe a couple of months after the CARES Act was passed. And it was, I think, the New York Times reporting about what was going on in the White House at the time. And, 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 and the reporting was that um, Trump was incredibly angry that he had signed uh, the, the CARES Act, or more to the point that it included emergency federal unemployment benefits. And he yelled, reported to have yelled at Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, who was the point man for the White House in the negotiations, because, of course, it's only the White House and the, and the, and the House Democrats. You know, Mitch McConnell just... <laughs> sits around doing this, waiting to see what Trump does. And so Mnuchin, uh, quote unquote, allowed those benefits to happen. And Trump was really, really angry. So, yeah, there's no way in, in, in hell, apparently, that uh, they're going to be part of something else. Uh, I, I mean, Trump has, you know, we do have this sort of very much watered down uh, um, benefit that, you know, hits people very unevenly. It's just not clear that it's, a, it's certainly not a good idea. It's certainly not what could have been done. But that's all we have. Hmm. It was that infamous question that Ronald Reagan asked in 1980. To, he asked, uh, are you better off today than you were four years ago? Asking it to the American families uh, economically if they were better. And even before all of this economic collapse happened because of COVID-19, I often question if the um, the economic situation of the average American had improved that much. What I was seeing anecdotally was that a lot of people who were working two or three jobs still had to work two or three jobs. They still had very high debt. Um, the tax cuts that barely trickled down to the average Americans hadn't really impacted their lives so much. Do you have any hard data that would suggest that maybe things weren't all that great back when they were that great? Four years ago? No, I'm talking about wow. before the COVID-19 hit earlier. Yeah, like yeah, in the spring. I mean, that, that, that's, no, that's right. That's right. I, I'm sorry. I was trying to kill a phone here. <laughs> um, because this is part of the Donald Trump economic, you know, uh, we yeah. created an economic juggernaut and we'd still be rocking along if it wasn't for this damn virus. Greatest economy in the history of the world. Joe right, Biden right. created this virus in China and killed everything. No, right. He wants us to remember what things were like. He wants us to forget any, everything that's happened since February. Right. right. He wants us to think only about how things were in, in, in February or January of this year. Um, no, I mean, the, the state of the economy then was, you know, basically good. Um, uh, giving Trump credit for it is 
I mean, the only way you can really give Trump credit for it is in a very backhanded way. You know, he didn't screw it up. He inherited a, a long but, you know, kind of slow expansion from Obama. And, um, you know, since uh, Trump took office in these three or so years, um, or yeah, I guess really three years leading up to the virus, um, uh, in those three years, the economy continued on that same upward trend. But by no means was there a supercharging of the economy. There wasn't an increase in uh, um, uh, uh, job growth in the right. rate of job growth. There was, there was more jo- There were more jobs created, of course, but, but they weren't being created at, at a faster pace than they had been. Uh, if anything, it was a slightly slower pace. GDP was growing at about the same. The stock market at first was going up faster and then, and then it wasn't. And now it really isn't. Um, except nowadays again, <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you know, it, uh, you, you really, you can't, you cannot, unless you have much better eyes than I or any other fair-minded person has, you cannot look at a graph of the data and see a change that happens in early 2017. And in fact, what's the signature economic policy accomplishment of the Trump administration? Those 2017, December 2017 tax cuts that uh, were promised. The promise was that they would spur job growth, uh, business investment, et cetera, et cetera. And none of that happened. There has been no increase in the pace of job growth. There's actually been a decline in the uh, in the growth of business investment. Um, uh, Really, all it did. and, And when, you know, partisans say things like this, there are times when they're right. All it really did was spur stock buybacks, corporate stock buybacks. And it left a lot of rich people with more money in their pockets. But, you know, the Republican dogma is that more money in rich people's pockets means more jobs. It just never works out that way. <laughs> well, I, but I see some sort of parallel because when we had this great recovery from the Great Recession of 2008, I remember for many years they were like, well, they, the corporations just kept the money in abeyance. They never really spent it on investing in factories. And in fact, I think there was a record amount of money that was held in cash by American corporations for, you know, 10 years or whatever after the recovery was made. And now, as you see, with the, the tax cuts that were given to a lot of these corporations, all they did was do stock buybacks. They haven't done a lot of things to create economic growth, like buying a new factory, buying a new piece of land, opening up a, a new facility, anything like that. Yeah, and the thing to remember in, in that is that in economics, investment isn't putting money in a 401k. That's just yeah. slotting money around. Yeah. Uh, investment is creating productive assets. Right. And uh, uh, you're exactly right. Uh, corporate America has not been doing that. I mean, th- they have been doing it, just not at any particularly faster pace than they were. Right. Um, the uh, Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we saw during the – and it really wasn't a very – good or fast uh, recovery from the from the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. It was a slow slog. Um, uh, you know, I, I there, there's certainly blame to go around, mostly on the you know who party. But, uh, <laughs> but, but it was kind of a slow um, slog of a recovery. But it's also true that uh, corporations, as you said, were sitting on piles of cash. And and so you had this uh, this dilemma. Uh, we needed to have more spending. And so someone had to do it. Well, households were in trouble. Uh, small businesses couldn't afford it. State right. and local governments were strapped. Uh, 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 large corporations could have done it, but they weren't. And, you know, there was no law that said they had to, um, except the law that allowed them to have all that cash in the first place, you know, the tax code. Um, and, uh, and so the only entity in the economy that had the ability to spend beyond its means was the federal government. Correct. But back but back in the wake of the Great Recession, as you recall, we were in the throes of this 
uh, mythology about the horrors of federal deficits. Uh, that was the era of Simpson Bowles. That was when, uh, you know, even, the, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, inside the Beltway media joined with centrist Democrats and, and, of course, all Republicans to talk about how terrible debt was. Yeah. Um, I think I think the media have begun to lose that uh, that bias, but we'll see. You know, I think I think their eyes were finally opened by the 2017 Trump tax cuts, which piled on well over a trillion dollars of debt for no discernible benefit to people other than the rich. Well, but you're you're discounting Trump's ability to go out and lie about it day after day, night after night and talk about that fantastic tax cut that we got in 2017. Reelect me and there's going to be more of that. It's going to be better it's going to come back so fast you won't believe it. The world will be astounded. And again, back to what we started with a few minutes ago, Republicans are suddenly putting on their uh, we shouldn't have bigger deficits pants, even though we're what we're pushing twenty five trillion probably by now, whatever it was. And three months ago, four months ago, they were they were all in. But now they're feeling suddenly maybe not anymore. They're going back to whatever fake dogma that they pretend to have about deficit spending and and the the public debt and uh it it just looks like we're we're headed on a collision course here with reality and we keep saying that and the stock market keeps um, uh, stabilizing or, or every time it goes back to, you, you see what's going on here and Trump measures his success by that and he goes out there and we have people who show up at these rallies, and we should not, for any anything, think that the people who show up to the rallies are the real Americans who are going to decide this election. They're no. already on Trump's team. I'm just guessing. It's he doesn't the, have to convince them. It's the he boat did. parade people. The boat parade people are the ones who are going to decide this election. <laughs> right. <Those> but, <laughs> but but those aren't the stockholders of America. But Trump gets up there and brags about the stock, and they cheer. Yeah, they cheer. And it has almost nothing to do with them. And here's Trump, who equates the great economy with a 27,000 on the Dow stock market. Talk about the, the, the wide gap between Main Street and, and Wall Street, or as Joe Biden likes to say, Main Street and uh, Park Avenue. He's using Park Avenue, not Wall Street. I thought he was using uh, Scranton. Wall Street, Scranton. Right. Scranton, right. It works. Which, uh, yeah, yeah I, I mean, no one who knows anything, um, which obviously <laughs> excludes our president, <laughs> no, no one who knows anything sees the stock market as anything other than one of many indicators of the economy. I mean, it's it's an indicator. It's not a particularly good indicator. There's a joke right. among economists about how the stock market predicted nine of the last five recessions. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it goes up, it goes down, uh, uh, you know, shit happens. Yeah. Um, um, but the other thing to remember is that, you know, why is the stock market, it's worth having, just uh, saying something brief about why the stock market is doing fairly well. Uh, part of it is that um, it, it's it's an expression of investors' confidence in owning these, uh, you know, shares of these businesses for the future. Right. Uh, I, I think investors are saying in part that, well, we know that the coronavirus, as badly as it's been mismanaged by this administration, won't be with us forever. At some point, these corporations will return to making money. We'd like to have a share of that. Um, that's one thing. Another thing is that with historically low interest rates, what else are you going to do with your money? 
And of course, the third thing is something that's kind of a, a inside baseball thing, which is that when you value businesses, the lower the interest rate, the bigger the value. Uh, you know, it has to do with present discounted flows of future uh, profits, and uh, it's just a, a it's just arithmetic that when uh, when discount when uh, interest rates are low. Uh, business valuations are higher. So that gooses uh, investors' willingness to invest in them now. So it, it is what it is. It's not nothing, but it really doesn't tell us much about the economy. Um, when I think about, uh, you know, what's my go-to single indicator of what's going on in the economy, um, I think of jobs. I think of uh, payroll employment. Uh, right. You know, GDP is that can be skewed by uh, a weird income distribution, and, and and ours is weirder and weirder than it was, much weirder than it was fifty years ago. Um, and so, if the rich people all do really well and the rest of us don't, well, it can look like GDP is rising. Yeah. Well, so, job growth is really the best one, and job growth is the one that's in the tank, obviously. <laughs> Have you done any work or, or, or thought about some of the changes in the way we measure our economy? Because I'm just my guess is that we're measuring the economy the same way we did 20 years ago, maybe 50 years ago. And like everything else, it changes. And I, I hope there isn't an originalist economist uh, view of, of the way we measure things, the way we have to uh, pretend that the Constitution was written in uh, 1787, and we can't change that either. Can't we make some some adjustments here that would make it more real for, for us to be able to really gauge what's going on? Well, like what? <laughs> I mean, there are there are some things that there are adjustments that are being made, but they're more along the lines of of well, for example, tax policy. Uh, you know, in an economy that is increasingly um, uh, driven by uh, service purchases of services rather than than goods, it, you know, it's it, it's always been a little crazy that goods have been taxed by sales tax, but services haven't. Uh-huh. Um, um, so th- there was, there's been some movement to acknowledge that change, that reality. I think there have been some adjustments in how states tax driving. You know, if if cars are increasingly uh, uh, energy efficient or running without gasoline altogether, then, you know, maybe you need to do something other than a gas tax to fund roads. But in terms of, you know, basic measurement, um, we, we do the best we can in terms of, and when I say we, I mean economists and really I mean government economists, uh, they do the best they can in terms of factoring in technological change, uh, product improvement, and, and, and certainly non-market goods like um, uh, household services. Uh, and, and so they're aware of all of these failings. And, and I think the bottom line has to be, you know, at the end of the day, well, that's two metaphors, bottom line and at the end of the day, um, I'll come up with another one. Uh, I think we have to accept that uh, our economic measures can't measure everything. From time right. to time, there are efforts to have like a gross satisfaction product or, you know, gross well-being product. And they're always, you know, very interesting exercises. And they may be right, but no effort like that is going to be without controversy, disagreement. And the one thing we do know is that as flawed as they are, our economic st- statistics measure what they measure. And we can always talk about the limitations. And chances are, when we identify a limitation, there's already a statistic uh, to address that. So, quick example, unemployment. The federal government produces three or four or five different unemployment rates because it understands that the one that we usually report has its limitations and doesn't describe everything. 
Mm. Um, we have a group of people in America. They're called essential workers. That's just about everybody that's doing stuff that you're not doing and I'm not doing. <laughs> How dare you? Not doing. Yeah. Um, Right about, no, I'm an essential who, worker. I, I want everybody to know that. Right. Well, well, you're essential. I don't see you working very much. You are just a dog. You're well, just a dog. Maybe right now. But, I'm kind of kicking right, it right, right now. No, but you you, you get you get the point. Um, you know, the, the people who work in grocery stores, um, the people who are doing all kinds of jobs that they don't make very much money in that uh, have to be done for the country to not completely f- collapse tomorrow. On the other side of this, are those folks going to get more respect than they get right now, or will we be right back to where we are? Oh, I expect we'll go right back to where we were. I mean, don't you? I, I mean, I, I think these people deserve respect, but they always did, and and they never got it in the past. I mean, whether they were working in grocery stores or you know city workers, um, you know, there's a real um, class divide in the way this uh, uh, this recession or whatever it is, is, well, it's certainly a recession, but it's the weirdest one we've ever seen. Um, but there's certainly a class divide in how this recession affects people. Uh, the unemployment rate, um, as it often is uh, during a recession, is much higher for people without college education. Um, it's much higher for, mm-hmm. for, for blacks than for whites. It's... Um, um, uh, you know, the 2008-2009 recession was was odd in that the uh, unemployment rate was initially much higher for men than for women because it was so yeah. uh, focused on uh, manufacturing and construction. I, I actually don't know how this one is affecting the sexes in that way. But but the, the, the uh, this is why you'll sometimes see people talk about a K-shaped recovery, you know, for people who are doing well, the people who are uh, – you know, well-educated who can, I guess, work from their homes or have teleconferences and so on, uh, you know, the recession is, uh, the recovery is moving along rather well. But for those, that's the top of the K, of course. But for others, it's still not looking good at all. And um, and these are not just, you know, you mentioned essential workers, but there are a lot of people who have just been restaurant workers, for example, people who have been uh, thrown out of jobs because um, uh, uh Either governments have banned people from using, from patronizing their businesses, or people don't want to because they're scared. I think to answer your question, Brad, what will be ha- what will happen to some of the essential workers or those folks who've been keeping us afloat during this time is they'll throw them a bone, they'll raise the minimum wage by seventy five cents, and they'll graduate it over three years, so it will have the most minimal impact of all time, and they'll say, "Look, we took care of those workers." I think that, I mean, honestly, and I hate to be cynical like that, but I believe that that's, and then they'll pat themselves on the back for taking care of the American workers. I think you're wrong. Uh, tell me. I think you're, I think you're wrong. <laughs> okay. I think you're wrong for a very disturbing reason. <laughs> you're such a, you're such an idealist. <laughs> um, if, the only the only way uh, the minimum wage will be raised is if uh, Democrats have uh, some power in, in Washington. The, the one thing yeah. that we know is that even though majorities of Amer- strong majorities of Americans want to see the minimum wage increased, even even a slim majority of Republicans want yeah. to see the minimum wage increased. Uh, the percentage of Republican senators and Republican congressmen who want it raised is let's see checks notes zero. <laughs> There's no <laughs> and 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 the reason is as near as we can tell because. In recent years, there have been some surveys of the uh, political views of the very rich. And it just so happens the very rich, you know, they're not just very different from you and I. They also have very different policy views. And one of the things they hate, hate, hate is increasing the minimum wage. 
And so uh, Republican politicians, at least in D.C., are moving very much in lockstep with the wishes of their rich donors. Um, I mean, you look at their their positions, especially in economic policy, they tend to match not what the voters want, even Republican rank and file voters, but they tend to match what uh, the rich donors want. And so sure. I, don't, I don't think they're going to raise the minimum wage even as a SOP, if they have anything to say about it. So yeah. uh, in, in this world, if the people who call themselves Republicans out there in America are 50 percent plus one, that's actually zero. Right. Is that how yeah. that works? It doesn't count. It's an electoral, it count it's an electoral, electoral college, Brad. We're looking at the electoral college and the electoral college doesn't want us to, to raise the minimum wage, apparently. Right. Well, and obviously right. each house has has as uh, uh, the ability to block anything done by the other house. You know, the reason uh, everything's moving so quickly with uh, uh, Ginsburg and all the judges, you know, what have, what has the Senate uh, accomplished? Lots and lots of judges approved after yeah. still walking virtually every nomination made during the Obama administration. They can do that because they don't have to have the House's agreement. Anything that involves, uh, you know, actual legislation involves uh, certainly uh, spending on appropriations and taxes has to be approved by both. And so so long as there is uh, um, a divided leadership in, on Capitol Hill, nothing's going to happen. Uh, did did uh, either of you guys catch any of the debate last night between Cal Cunningham and Tom Tillis? I heard I highlights. Right. Uh, they, they do their best to kind of hide that it was going on. It was uh, in our right. area. It was on uh, WGHP okay. for, for, for one hour. And uh, you really it, it was kind of amateur hour in terms of the way it was presented. I mean, they gave each guy 30 seconds to answer. And then Good the boy. other guy had 15 seconds to come back. It was just horrible. But the, the, uh, the question I'm asking is the Democrat, Cal Cunningham, is definitely reading from the playbook of I'm not going to make this about Donald Trump. I'm going to make it about Tom Tillis. I'm going to go straight at at him, and I'm going to leave Trump out of it. And I guess that's going on all over the country in these similar Senate races, probably in Colorado, and, and but maybe not. Maybe other people are trying to tie that Republican senator straight to Trump. Is that a smart move to just go with uh, the next judge, uh, the Trump appoints is probably going to take away your health care, the uh, right of women to choose an abortion and all these things. Or should Donald Trump be more of the focus? I think there should be more of a balance because I heard the wheels going in Cunningham's head. Don't say Trump. Don't say the word Trump. And and uh, I again, I'm not a political consultant, but that's just what I read. But maybe Trump has a high enough approval rating in North Carolina that he thinks he can pull a. Uh, you know what Roy Cooper did four years ago. Trump won the state, mm-hmm. but uh, P- uh, Pat McCrory was so damn unpopular right. <laughs> that he was able to take him out. And the, obviously, people split their ticket there. They didn't all vote Republican or all vote Democrat. What do you think, Andrew? I too am not a political analyst, but I will note that currently, Tillis is running behind Trump in North Carolina. Uh, tying him to Trump, I, I would think it has the potential to improve his numbers. And I yeah. suspect the, the Cunningham campaign just doesn't want to do that. Right now, uh, I saw this great piece in um, Vox just today, just this morning, about that, that broke really? down the, uh, the race between, or I should say among, 
three regions in North Carolina, not east versus west versus central, but urban versus rural versus suburban. Right. Uh, urban North Carolina is, is, you know, very blue. Rural North Carolina is deep red. Uh, and the battleground in recent years has been the suburbs. And the suburbs broke for Trump in 2016, but they did not break for McCrory, hence uh, Cooper's you know, very narrow win. Uh, right now, the polling, I think, indicates that uh, uh, Cunningham is winning the suburbs. But, you know, obviously anything can happen between now and November 3rd. So um, so it's 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 going to be close either way. And my guess is that he he's looking at those numbers and saying, look, <laughs> if anything, you know, I may not be winning, but I, I don't want to connect him with a popular with a politician who's more popular in North Carolina than he is. Mm. So that would be my guess of, of what's going on with their thinking. Is there, uh, Go ahead. Is there is there a fear among the, the Cal Cunningham campaign that uh, maybe Donald Trump will go on one of those wild late night Twitter jags and start screaming about Cal Cunningham and maybe that'll bring more attention to him? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what and it's uh, possible. Except that I don't know what that would do. I mean, the the thing is, one of the frustrating things about um, about a lot of sort of less wacky Republicans is that, you know, they will defend Trump by arguing, uh, well, okay, so his tweets are bad. uh, But, uh, you know, Biden would be worse. You know, I think Biden's a radical. (laughs) And and uh, and and so uh, more Twitter rants by by Trump, you know, does that turn more of those people off? Because that's the one thing they really do dislike about him. Or uh, is that already baked in at this point? I mean, I I I think there's a lot there's there's good reason to think that a lot of this stuff is baked in. I I personally (laughs) don't see how anyone could be Mm. indifferent (laughs) or undecided between Trump and Biden. But, you know. Speaking of baked in, because of early voting, and in this state in particular, because of early mail-in voting, we don't have in-person, I think, till the 17th of October, something like that. But you, you've seen the numbers. It's like 700,000 early ballots have already been requested. At this time, four years ago, it was 100,000. So by a factor of seven, it's up. And, and uh, heavily Democratic uh, requests for ballots. So those are Democratic votes. Is that, I think that's a huge disadvantage for Trump. It's a huge disadvantage for, for Tom Tillis because uh, uh, on Election Day, you can't assume whatever the average number was going to be that it's going to be sunny and 65 degrees and it's going to be a wonderful day and they'll make up the difference on that day. I think this is a huge disadvantage for them. So Again, like you said at the beginning, Trump can be right and full of shit at the same time, which is that, uh, you know, mail in voting and we'll never elect another Republican again. That's not quite true. But in this case, it could turn out to be in in this state because, you know, uh, I I was actually kind of proud that for once North Carolina wasn't in the middle of some ranking of the 50 state. We're always in the middle. We're always number 36. But we were number one as being the first state to send out mail-in ballots we were just a pretty pretty cool thing and well, I, I and, the, and, and the other thing that we can be proud of in the state is that uh we we're doing something about partisan gerrymandering you know yeah. the, the federal courts uh have or rather the supreme court has said that federal courts cannot do anything about that you, you know your guys are on your own and so a lot of states are just you know like wisconsin with a very conservative state supreme court they have you know an extremely and, and bizarrely gerrymandered um uh, 
state map. North Carolina uh, won't. Uh, and so uh, all I care about is is a fair map. Um, um, I mean, I know that I probably should support sticking it to the Republicans after these 10 years, but I really just want a fair map. And and frankly, I think that's where North Carolina is headed. That's another good thing. Um, another reason why we're we're not just another southern state, that we're, we're a little bit different. We're going to miss Mark Walker, aren't we? We're going to miss him <laughs> so badly. We're so sorry he needs to spend more time with his family. There's a guy that said, my God, they actually drew the map more fairly. I can't win anymore. See you later. I mean, I'm going to go do color it. for the Dallas Cowboys or something, well, whatever I mean, they do it, after they retire. I, I, I presume this violates some sort of Brad and Britt rule, but I will defend Mark Walker. In one oh, sentence. no. <laughs> uh, oh, Dr. Broad. Uh, I will say that uh, I, I thought he was gone already, but yeah. – but but other than that, you know, the the way the way the, the, the Republican NCGA uh, responded to the court orders was not to draw fair districts. You know, NC six is not necessarily fairer than before. It's unfair, but it's, it's unfair in the other direction. Okay. So what the Republicans did to respond to the court decision was to say, all right, well, we're going to have fewer pro-Republican gerrymandered, you know, red gerrymandered districts, and we're going to have a few more uh, blue gerrymandered districts, and we'll come closer to 7-6 or whatever it is, and that should satisfy the court, and apparently it did. Um, ideally, we would have I mean, you're never going to have a situation where every uh, district is is equally contested. You know, you, you, I mean, there's going to be more of something. I, I mean, Kansas will always have more Republicans than Democrats. Um, but North Carolina is, is pretty well split. And, and, and I think we need to uh, uh, aim for a, a, a fair map. And Mark Walker you know, to be fair to him, he didn't get a fair map. He got a map that was drawn the other way. Oh, uh, the tears, the tears in my eyes. But he, mark, wouldn't have, he wouldn't have existed in the first place if without the, map the unfair hadn't map. been unfair in the other direction. And I'm, the, I'm not I, saying everything should be tit for tat. But, no. but uh, the Mark uh, Walker what, story, the Mark Walker story is this. He was the last guy that was put in by the kingmaker when B.J. Barnes was sheriff of, of Guilford County. That was the guy. He, if B.J. Barnes touched you at a certain point, then you went on to do whatever you went on to do. And then B.J. Barnes was voted out. And then he's done now. His his power to uphold somebody and prop him up is gone. And Mark Walker yeah. is not able to be propped up anymore. And so now he's gone. I, that's I don't the story. I don't think you heard me say anything nice about Mark Walker. No, but that's, <laughs> I, have no, I, have no, I have no pity for him. That's the state. The, the, in uh, this is going to be kind of fearful for me because I don't want Brad's eye to start twitching like he's giving out Morse code. But can we address this whole situation about these great Reddit theories about how China sent this virus over to kill the United States economy so they could have the greatest economy in the world? Can we can we can we attack those uh, Bonifacia? Because China needs us to buy their shit, don't they? Is that is that one of the things? I mean, I'm not I'm not like a great economic mind like yourself, Doctor Broad or Larry Kudlow or Mnuchin or any of these economic whoa, geniuses. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> but doesn't isn't it fair to say that China needs us to buy their shit? And when we're not buying their shit, it gums up the entire works, if I may use, you know, high stilted economic language. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, I mean, China was uh, I don't I don't think China cares as much about the, the, the rankings as we do. Uh, uh, China was was going to pass us soon anyway. Uh, uh, I mean, you have that many people. And uh, their their average wealth is far below ours. But there's so many of them that as they slowly 
get richer. They were going to pass us. I mean, it, it can't be helped. Uh, sometimes things really are just arithmetic. Um, so, uh, yeah, they don't. Um, and if anyone's in it for the long game, it's China. You know, they play the long game. So I, I don't see this. This is I mean, that's just it's it's laughable. It's it's silly. Uh, it, it's just the thing that you say at a Trump rally. Well, I, and I apologize for putting you in the same category as Mr. Kudlow and Mr. Mnuchin. I, it was, I was I was on a rant there, I suppose. Uh, we can One do of a us quick... has a PhD. They don't. <laughs> oh, well, you know, you, you do have a point, don't you? Uh, we can talk about this because this is breaking news. We can get a quick take on this. A grand jury in Jefferson County, Kentucky, has charged Brett Hankison, a former Louisville police detective, with three counts of wanton endangerment in the first degree uh, in the shooting of Breonna Taylor, which has been a, a cause celeb there. I think the National Guard has been activated. Um, in Louisville, and we are very likely, I'm going to say that this is not going to satisfy a lot of folks that were looking for justice in this case. We're likely to see a lot of civil unrest on the streets of Louisville um, continuing going forward. Obviously, our hearts go out and we hope that everyone is safe. We don't like the destruction of property, et cetera, et cetera. People will have the right to protest, and I certainly hope that they take advantage of that. But I want to know how those images might benefit Donald Trump with his law and order campaign that he's going hard and heavy on. Either one of you. Well, yeah, again, not a political analyst, but I mean, you know, one thing we know is that, um, and, and this isn't just Trump, you know, Trump uh, has, uh, I don't know if he's perfected it, we'll, we'll know uh, of, uh, like a week after November 3rd whether it worked, uh, I hope a week after November 3rd, but, but Republican campaigns have for a number of, a number of cycles depended on uh, fear, you know, uh, uh, what do we see in, in 2012? Uh, the propaganda arm of the Republican Party, Fox News, uh, talked about uh, Ebola. What do we see in uh, – oh, wait, that was 2014. Then in 2018, it was the caravan of, yeah. of uh, people yeah. approaching the border. You know, so there's generally a uh, – there's something that they use to instill fear. Because, by the way, uh, you're probably aware there have been studies of, of voting behavior and, uh, you know, psychological studies that – um, or I should say by psychologists that show that when people are asked about issues and then asked about issues after having seen really scary material, yeah. they tend to vote more conservative. Yeah. Uh, there's something about uh, voting conservative that affects the, you know, the lizard brain that, you know, the, the uh, fight or flight or the something. There's mm-hmm. something uh, deep about voting Republican and it's not rational. It is uh, a lot of it. Not all of it, but uh, but but there's an element of it that's fear. So they clearly see this as uh, a useful tool. Of course, he's going to be talking about that. He hasn't said anything about the reasons for the for the violence, or I'm sorry, the, the protest. He hasn't said anything about about um, uh, police violence and police murders of, of innocent right. people. Uh, I mean, what is what does he do? He pl- he applauds the beating yeah. of journalists. I mean. Right. Uh, you know, the asshole in chief does what he does. Yeah. Um, but 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 stoking fear is his maybe only big tool left that that may be all he really has. Well, the, the polling up there in Wisconsin, which would be kind of ground zero for for it being more of a local story than anywhere else. Wisconsin, because of Kenosha, uh, Joe Biden is is still ahead on law and order after all the, the bellowing and screaming. Uh, Joe Biden, I think he's 52 to 48. Which person is better equipped to to handle these kinds of situations? So Trump is out there screaming, and I don't think it's it's getting a lot of traction. If there are problems in Louisville uh, tonight and over the next few days or or it it, it turns into a, a bigger thing, 
uh, if Republicans keep using video of violence going on right now, and they think that there are enough American people stupid enough to think that the violence going on right now is what you're going to see in the future if Joe Biden is president, well, yeah. then we deserve what we're getting. But it doesn't seem like that that idea is working all that well, except for the hardcore base. And right. you've seen interviews with people who just parrot what you know they learned from from uh, Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity on Fox News. But the you know, all of America is not watching that. All of America is not on Twitter. Um, most of America is worried about getting their kids educated and figuring out how to get Wi-Fi so that the, the, the signal yeah. doesn't go down and uh, whether they're ever going to be able to go to a football game again, ever. And, and I, we know that the 10 years from now, we'll probably be going to a football game, but it doesn't feel like that right now. No, nope, it does not. There was a piece that, that, that broke an, an hour ago. The Metropolitan Opera, the great Metropolitan Opera of New York, has canceled for another whole year. They're Good saying God. right now they can look out a whole year and say, no, not possible. So essentially, that's the end of live theater in the country, just about. And, 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 and rock concerts and, and all that kind of stuff. And people, they really are worried about that. I think that uh, uh, the, the scare tactics of George Wallace which is what you're seeing channeling through to Donald Trump. Sure. I, I don't think they're going to work. I feel that now talk to me in an hour and I'll be all depressed and I'll go the other way. But I, yeah, you know, you, you mentioned yeah. the, 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 uh, the, the complete weirdness of, of having, you know, Trump say, look at all this footage of violence going on during my administration. This is what you'll get, you know, with with Joe Biden. Um, that's weird as well. But the other weird thing about the, the fear mongering is that, uh, the, the one thing that people accept the base, you know, they're most afraid of black people coming to get them. Right. Uh, but but what most people are most afraid of is how to deal with the coronavirus, how to uh, get their kids educated, how to get their job done, how to put food on the table. Right. That, that's something that a lot of people, I, I don't know, I guess I haven't seen any polling, but I would think more people are afraid of that. Um, than um, than uh, the other stuff, and so Trump's threading this needle. Right. You need to be afraid about. Hey, See, people they're trying to call you. You're getting all the work. Nobody else can get a job. <laughs> yeah, people are watching this right now and calling me right now. Um, so Trump but, is threading a needle. So you need, yeah, I mean, you need to be afraid about this thing, but not that thing. Be afraid about the black people, but not about the virus. Right. Uh, and that's that's a that's really a very interesting balancing act, and it's hard to imagine how it can work. But uh, again, I, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, he doesn't need to attract many. I mean, I'm not a political analyst, but I but I know what numbers are, and and he has this stubborn 40 to 42 percent approval rating, and as long as that uh, the approval rating is is reflected in votes, yeah. um, and as long as those votes are spread out in in a sufficiently thin but convenient geographical manner, right? He, he can he win it once again with a minority of votes. Um, he stays he in the game. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. care about appealing to the majority. Um, he just needs to make damn sure that his base is scared enough to get out there and vote. Gentlemen, I think that's going to be a good place to leave it. Fear. All right. Uh, Rod, best, best in the business as far as we're concerned. You're great. You're great. And we want to do yep. this again uh, in, in a couple of weeks or a month, whenever. You know, We need to do it definitely before the election. Yeah, How for sure. That? 
How about that? Yeah, one, one, one more time, and, and we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up right there. All right. Andrew Broad, thank you, everybody. Brad and Brit.com.